Section 2 of Selected Uncle Abner Mysteries by Melville Davison Post. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Wrong Hand Abner never would have taken me into that house if he could have helped it. He was on a desperate mission, and a child was the last company he wished, but he had to do it. It was an evening of early winter, raw and cold. A chilling rain was beginning to fall. Night was descending, and I could not go on. I had been into the upcountry and had taken this shortcut through the hills that lay here against the mountains. I would have been home by now, but a broken shoe had delayed me. I did not see Abner's horse until I approached the crossroads, but I think he had seen me from a distance. His great chestnut stood in the grass plot between the roads, and Abner sat upon him like a man of stone. He had made his decision when I got to him. The very aspect of the land was sinister. The house stood on a hill. Round its base, through the sodded meadows, the river ran, dark, swift, and silent. Stretching westward was a forest, and from background the great mountains stood into the sky. The house was very old. The high windows were of little panes of glass, and on the ancient white door the paint was seamed and cracked with age. The name of the man who lived here was a byword in the hills. He was a hunchback, who sat as great roan as though he were a spider in the saddle. He had been married more than once, but one wife had gone mad, and my uncle Abner's drovers had found the other on a summer morning, swinging to the limb of a great elm that stood before the door. A bridle rein knotted round her throat, and her bare feet scattering the yellow pollen of the ragweed. That elm was to us a dual tree. One could not ride beneath it for the swinging of this ghost. The estate undivided belonged to Gall and his brother. This brother lived beyond the mountains. He never came until he came that last time. Gall rendered some accounting, and they managed in that way. It was said the brother believed himself defrauded and had come finally to divide the lands, but this was gossip. Gall said his brother came upon a visit and out of love for him. One did not know where the truth lay between these stories. Why he came we could not be certain, but why he remained was beyond a doubt. One morning Gall came to my Uncle Abner, clinging to the pommel of his saddle while his great horse galloped, to say that he had found his brother dead and asking Abner to go with some others and look upon the man before one touched his body, and then to get him buried. The hunchback sniveled and cried out that his nerves were gone with grief and the terror of finding his brother's throat cut open and the blood upon him as he lay ghastly in his bed. He did not know a detail. He had looked in at the door and fled. His brother had not got up, and he had gone to call him. Why his brother had done this thing he could not imagine. He was in perfect health, and he slept beneath his roof in love. The hunchback had blinked his red-lidded eyes and twisted his big hairy hands and presented the aspect of grief. It looked grotesque and loathsome, but how else could a toad look in his extremity? Abner had gone with my father and L. Nathan Stone. They had found the man, as Gall said, the razor by his hand and the marks of his fingers and his struggle on him and about the bed and the county had gone to see him buried. The hills had been afire with talk, but Abner and my father and Elnathan Stone were silent. They came silent from Gall's house, 
They stood silent before the body when it was laid out for burial, and bareheaded they were silent when the earth received it. A little later, however, when Gaul brought forth a will, leaving the brother's share of the estate to the hunchback, with certain loving words and a mean allowance to the man's children, the three had met together and Abner had walked about all night. As we turned in toward the house, Abner asked me if I'd got my supper. I told him yes, and at the ford he stopped and sat a moment in the saddle. Martin, he said, get down and drink. It is God's river and the water clean in it. Then he extended his great arm toward the shadowy house. We shall go in, he said, but we shall not eat nor drink there, for we do not come in peace. I do not know much about that house, for I saw only one room in it, and that was empty, cluttered with dust and rubbish, and preempted by the spider. Long double windows of little panes of glass looked out over the dark, silent river slipping past without a sound, and the rain driving into the forest and the loom of the mountains. There was a fire, the trunk of an apple tree burning, with one end in the fireplace. There were some old chairs with black haircloth seats, and a sofa, all very old. These the hunchback did not sit on, for the dust appeared when they were touched. He had a chair beside the hearth, and he sat in that, a high-backed chair made like a settee and padded. The arms padded, too, but there the padding was worn out and ragged, where his hands had plucked it. He wore a blue coat made with little capes to hide his hump, and he sat tapping the burning tree with his cane. There was a gold piece set into the head of this black stick. He had put it there, the gossip said, that his fingers might be always on the thing he loved. His gray hair lay along his face, and the draft of the chimney moved it. He wondered why we came, and his eyes declared how the thing disturbed him. They flared up and burned down, now gleaming in his head as he looked us over, and now dull as he considered what he saw. The man was misshapen and doubled up, but there was strength and vigor in him. He had a great cavernous mouth, and his voice was a sort of bellow. One has seen an oak tree, dwarfed and stunted into knots, but with the toughness and vigor of a great oak in it. Gaul was a thing like that. He cried out when he saw Abner. He was taken by surprise, and he wished to know if we had come by chance or upon some errand. "'Abner,' he said, "'come in. It's a devil's night, rain and the driving wind.' "'The weather,' said Abner, "'is in God's hand.' "'God!' cried Gaul. I would shoestrap such a god. The autumn is not half over, and here is winter come, and no pasture left, and the cattle to be fed. Then he saw me with my scared white face, and he was certain that we came by chance. He craned his thick neck and looked. Bub, he said, come in and warm your fingers. I will not hurt you. I did not twist my body up like this to frighten children. It was Abner's god. We entered and sat down by the fire. The apple tree blazed and cracked. The wind outside increased. The rain turned into a kind of sleet that rattled on the window glass like shot. The room was lighted by two candles and tall brass candlesticks. They stood at each end of the mantelpiece, smeared with tallow. The wind whooped and spat into the chimney, and now and then a puff of wood smoke blew out and mounted up along the blackened fireboard. Abner and the hunchback talked of the price of cattle, 
of the black leg among yearlings, that fatal disease that we had so much trouble with, and of the lump jaw. Gall said that if calves were kept in small lots and not all together, the black leg was not so apt to strike them, and he thought the lump jaw was a germ. Fatten the bullock with green corn and put it in a car, he said, when the lump begins to come. The Dutch would eat it, and what poison could hurt the Dutch? But Abner said the creature should be shot. And lose the purchase money and a summer's grazing, cried Gall. Not I. I shipped the beast. Then, said Abner, the inspector in the market ought to have it shot, and you find to boot. The inspector in the market? And Gall laughed. Why, I slip him a greenback, thus. And he set his thumb against his palm. And he is glad to see me. Gall, bring in all you can, said one. It means a little something to us both. And the hunchback's laugh clucked and chuckled in his throat. And they talked of renters and men to harvest the hay and feed the cattle in the winter. And on this topic, Gall did not laugh. He cursed. Labor was a lost art and the breed of men run out. This new set were worthless. They had hours. And his oaths filled all the rafters. Hours! Why, under his father, men worked from dawn until dark and cleaned their horses by a lantern. These were decadent times that we were come on. In the good days, one bought a man for two hundred eagles. But now the creature was a citizen and voted at the polls and could not be kicked. And if one took his cane and drubbed him, he was straightway sued at law in an action of trespass on the case for damages. Men had gone mad with these new-fangled notions, and the earth was likely to grow up with weeds. Abner said there was a certain truth in this, and that truth was that men were idler than their fathers. Certain preachers preached that labor was a curse, and backed it up with scripture. But he had read the scriptures for himself, and the curse was idleness. Labor and God's book would save the world. They were two wings that a man could get his soul to heaven on. They can all go to hell for me, said Gall, and so I have my day's work first. And he tapped the tree with his great stick and cried out that his work hands robbed him. He had to sit his horse and watch, or they'd hang their scythes up, and he must put sulfur in the cattle's meal, or they stole it from him. And they milked his cows to feed their scurvy babies. He would have their hides off if it were not for these tender laws. Abner said that, while one saw to his day's work done, he must see to something more, that a man was his brother's keeper in spite of Cain's denial, and he must keep him, that the elder had his right to the day's work, but the younger also had his right to the benefits of his brother's guardianship. The fiduciary had one to settle with. It would go hard if he should shirk the trust. I do not recognize your trust, said Gaul. I live here for myself. "'For yourself!' cried Abner. "'And would you know what God thinks of you?' "'And would you know what I think of God?' cried Gaul. "'What do you think of him?' said Abner. "'I think he's a scarecrow,' said Gaul. "'And I think, Abner, that I am a wiser bird than you are. "'I have not sat cawing in a tree, afraid of the thing. "'I have seen its wooden spine under its patched jacket, and the cross-piece peeping from the sleeves, and its dangling legs. And I have gone down into its field, and taken what I liked, in spite of its flapping coat-tails. Why, Abner, this thing your God depends on is a thing called fear, and I do not have it. 
Abner looked at him hard, but he did not answer. He turned instead to me. Martin, he said, you must go to sleep, lad. And he wrapped me in his greatcoat and put me to bed on the sofa behind him in the corner. I was snug and warm there, and I could have slept like Saul, but I was curious to know what Abner came for, and I peeped out through a buttonhole of the greatcoat. Abner sat for a long time, his elbows on his knees, his hands together and his eyes looking into the fire. The hunchback watched him, his big, hairy hands moving on the padded arms of his chair and his sharp eyes twinkling like specks of glass. Finally, Abner spoke. I judged he believed me now asleep. And so, Gaul, he said, you think God is a scarecrow? I do, said Gaul. And you have taken what you liked? I have, said Gaul. Well, said Abner, I have come to ask you to return what you have taken, and something besides, for usury. He got a folded paper out of his pocket and handed it across the hearth to Gaul. The hunchback took it, leaned back in his chair, unfolded it at his leisure, and at his leisure read it through. A deed in fee, he said, for all these lands, to my brother's children. The legal terms are right. Doth grant with covenants of general warranty? It is well drawn, Abner, but I am not pleased to grant. Gaul, said Abner, there are certain reasons that may move you. The hunchback smiled. They must be very excellent to move a man to alienate his lands. Excellent they are, said Abner. I shall mention the best one first. Do, said Gaul, and his grotesque face was merry. It is this, said Abner. You have no heirs. Your brother's son is now a man. He should marry a wife and rear up children to possess these lands. And as he is called upon to do what you cannot do, Gaul, he should have the things you have to use. That's a very pretty reason, Abner, said the hunchback, and it does you honor. But I know a better. What is it, Gaul? said Abner. The hunchback grinned. Let us say, my pleasure. Then he struck his bootleg with his great black stick. And now, he cried, who's back of this tomfoolery? I am, said Abner. The hunchback's heavy brows shot down. He was not disturbed, but he knew that Abner moved on no fool's errand. Abner, he said, you have some special reason for this thing. What is it? I have several reasons for it, replied Abner. And I gave you the best one first. Then the rest are not worth the words to say them in, cried Gaul. You are mistaken there, replied Abner. I said that I would give you the best reason, not the strongest. Think of the reason I have given. We do not have our possessions in fee in this world, Gaul, but upon lease and for a certain term of service. And when we make default in that service, the lease abates, and a new man can take the title. Gaul did not understand, and he was wary. I carry out my brother's will, he said. But the dead replied Abner, cannot retain dominion over things. There can be no tenure beyond a life estate. These lands and chattels are for the uses of men as they arrive. The needs of the living overrule the devices of the dead. Gaul was watching Abner closely. He knew that this was some digression, but he met it with equanimity. 
He put his big, hairy fingers together and spoke with a judicial air. "'Your argument,' he said, "'is without a leg to stand on. It is the dead who govern. Look, you man, how they work their will upon us. Who have made the laws? The dead. Who have made the customs that we obey and that form and shape our lives? The dead. And the titles to our lands? Have not the dead devised them?' If a surveyor runs a line, he begins at some corner that the dead set up. And if one goes to law upon a question, the judge looks backward through his books until he finds out how the dead have settled it, and he follows that. And all the writers, when they would give weight and authority to their opinions, quote the dead. And the orators and all those who preach and lecture are not their mouths filled with words that the dead have spoken? Why, man, our lives follow grooves that the dead have run out with their thumbnails. He got on his feet and looked at Abner. What my brother has written in his will, I will obey, he said. Have you seen that paper, Abner? I have not, said Abner. But I have read the copy in the county clerk's book. It bequeathed these lands to you. The hunchback went over to an old secretary standing against the wall. He pulled it open got out the will and a pack of letters, and brought them to the fire. He laid the letters on the table beside Abner's deed and held out the will. Abner took the testament and read it. "'Do you know my brother's writing?' said Gall. "'I do,' said Abner. "'Then you know he wrote that will.' "'He did,' said Abner. "'It is in Enoch's hand.' Then he added, "'But the date is a month before your brother came here.' "'Yes,' said Gall. It was not written in this house. My brother sent it to me. See, here is the envelope that it came in, postmarked on that date. Abner took the envelope and compared the date. It is the very date, he said, and the address is in Enoch's hand. It is, said Gall. When my brother had set his signature to this will, he addressed that cover. He told me of it. The hunchback sucked in his cheeks and drew down his eyelids. Ah, oh, yes, he said, "'My brother loved me.' "'He must have loved you greatly,' replied Abner, "'to thus disinherit his own flesh and blood.' "'And am I not of his own flesh and blood, too?' cried the hunchback. "'The strain of blood in my brother runs pure in me. "'In these children it is diluted. "'Shall not one love his own blood first?' "'Love,' echoed Abner. "'You speak the word, Gaul. "'But do you understand it?' I do, said Gaul, for it bound my brother to me. And did it bind you to him? said Abner. I could see the hunchback's great white eyelids drooping and his lengthened face. We were like David and Jonathan, he said. I would have given my right arm for Enoch, and he would have died for me. He did, said Abner. I saw the hunchback start, and to conceal the gesture he stooped and thrust the trunk of the apple tree a little farther into the fireplace. A cloud of sparks sprang up. A gust of wind caught the loose sash in the casement behind us and shook it as one barred out and angry shakes a door. When the hunchback rose, Abner had gone on. "'If you loved your brother like that,' he said, "'you will do him this service. You will sign this deed.' "'But Abner!' replied Gaul. Such was not my brother's will. By the law these children will inherit at my death. Can they not wait? Did you wait? said Abner. The hunchback flung up his head. Abner, he 
cried. "'What do you mean by that?' And he searched my uncle's face for some indicatory sign. But there was no sign there. The face was stern and quiet. "'I mean,' said Abner, "'that one ought not to have an interest in another's death.' "'Why not?' said Gall. "'Because,' replied Abner, "'one may be tempted to step in before the providence of God and do its work for it.' Gall turned the innuendo with a cunning twist. "'You mean,' he said, "'that these children may come to seek my death?' I was astonished at Abner's answer. "'Yes,' he said, "'that is what I mean.' "'Man!' cried the hunchback. "'You make me laugh!' "'Laugh as you like,' replied Abner. "'But I am sure that these children will not look at this thing as we have looked at it.' "'As who have looked at it?' said Gall. "'As my brother Rufus and Elnathan Stone and I,' said Abner. "'And so,' said the hunchback, "'you gentlemen have considered how to save my life.' "'I am much obliged to you,' he made a grotesque mocking bow. "'And how have you meant to save it?' "'By the signing of that deed,' said Abner. "'I thank you,' cried the hunchback, "'but I am not pleased to save my life that way.' I thought Abner would give some biting answer, but instead he spoke slowly and with a certain hesitation. "'There is no other way,' he said. "'We have believed that the stigma of your death and the odium on the name and all the scandal would in the end wrong these children more than the loss of this estate during the term of your natural life. But it is clear to me that they will not so regard it, and we are bound to lay it before them if you do not sign the deed. It is not for my brother Rufus and Elnathan Stone and me to decide this question. To decide what question? said Gall. Whether you are to live or die, said Abner. The hunchback's face grew stern and resolute. He sat down in his chair, put his stick between his knees, and looked my uncle in the eyes. Abner, he said, you are talking in some riddle. Say the thing out plain. Do you think I forged that will? I do not, said Abner. Nor could any man, cried the hunchback. It is in my brother's hand, every word of it. And besides, there is neither ink nor paper in this house. I figure on a slate, and when I have a thing to say, I go and tell it. And yet, said Abner, the day before your brother's death, you bought some sheets of fool's cap of the postmaster. I did, said Gall, and for my brother. Enoch wished to make some calculations with his pencil. I have the paper with his figures on it. He went to his desk and brought back some sheets. And yet, said Abner, this will is written on a page of foolscap. And why not, said Gall. Is it not sold in every store to Mexico? It was the truth, and Abner drummed on the table. And now, said Gall, we have laid one suspicion by looking it squarely in the face. Let us lay the other. What did you find out about my brother's death to moon over? Why, said Abner, should he take his own life in this house? I do not know that, said Gall. I will tell you, said Abner. We found a bloody handprint on your brother. Is that all you found on him? That is all, said Abner. Well, cried Gall, does that prove that I killed him? Let me look your ugly suspicion in the face. Were not my brother's hands covered with his blood? 
And was not the bed covered with his fingerprints, where he had clutched about it in his death struggle? Yes, said Abner, that is all true. And was there any mark or sign in that print, said Gall, by which you could know that it was made by any certain hand? And he spread out his fingers. As, for instance, my hand? No, said Abner. There was victory in Gall's face. He had now learned all that Abner knew, and he no longer feared him. There was no evidence against him. Even I saw that. And now, he cried, will you get out of my house? I will have no more words with you. Be gone. Abner did not move. For the last five minutes he had been at work at something, but I could not see what it was, for his back was toward me. Now he turned to the table beside Gall, and I saw what he had been doing. He had been making a pen out of a goose quill. He laid the pen down on the table, and beside it a horn of ink. He opened out the deed that he had brought, put his finger on a line, dipped the quill into the ink, and held it out to Gall. Sign there, he said. The hunchback got on his feet with an oath. Be gone with your damned paper, he cried. Abner did not move. When you have signed, he said. Signed, cried the hunchback. I will see you and your brother Rufus and old Nathan Stone and all the kid and kittle of you in hell. Gall, said Abner, you will surely see all who are to be seen in hell. By Abner's manner I knew that the end of the business had arrived. He seized the will and the envelope that Gall had brought him from his secretary and held them out before him. You tell me, he said, that these papers were written at one sitting? Look, the hand that wrote that envelope was calm and steady, but the hand that wrote this will shook. See how the letters wave and jerk. I will explain it. You have kept that envelope from some old letter, but this paper was written in this house in fear, and it was written on the morning that your brother died. Listen. When Elnathan Stone stepped back from your brother's bed, he stumbled over a piece of carpet. The underside of that carpet was smeared with ink where a bottle had been broken. I put my finger on it, and it was wet. The hunchback began to howl and bellow like a beast penned in a corner. I crouched under Abner's coat in terror. The creature's cries filled the great empty house. They rose a hellish crescendo on the voices of the wind. And for accompaniment, the sleet played shrill notes on the window panes, and the loose shingles clattered a staccato, and the chimney whistled like weird instruments under a devil's fingers. And all the time Abner stood looking down at the man, an implacable, avenging nemesis, and his voice, deep and level, did not change. But before that, we knew you had killed your brother. We knew it when we stood before his bed. Look there, said Rufus, at that bloody handprint. We looked, and we knew that Enoch's hand had not made that print. Do you know how we knew that, Gaul? I will tell you. The bloody print on your brother's right hand, was the print of a right hand. Gall signed the deed, and at dawn we rode away, with a hunchback's promise that he would come that afternoon before a notary and acknowledge what he had signed. But he did not come, neither on that day nor on any day after that. When Abner went to fetch him, he found him swinging from his elm tree. End of the Wrong Hand